following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. A lifeguard tells a story of not being able to save a two-year-old child that fell into a pool and drowned. A family tells a story of not being able to save their loved one from a drug overdose. A friend of mine once came across a a car crash at some train tracks and wasn't able to save uh, the one person that was alive in the car when he arrived. You think about the anguish of soul that all those things bring, and you think about the, the grief over not being able to save someone who is perishing. That's the same kind of, of grief, that's the same kind of anguish of soul that, that a Christian has when they think about how so many people are rejecting Christ and so many people are, are saying, you know, I don't want anything to do with the gospel. By the way, my friend uh, who came across, across that car crash at the train tracks shared the gospel with the young man that was in the car and prayed with him before he died. Praise God. But survivors, they sober us. They, they sober us because they remind us that there are some many who are not saved. And today we're in Romans chapter 11. We're looking at verses 7 through 10. And, you know, last week we saw that the present remnant reminds us that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful. But today, a much more sobering point. The present remnant reminds us that there are many who are hard-hearted and who are rejecting the gospel and who are unsaved. So that's what we're going to look at today, and we preach every verse. We're not going to skip the ones that are tough. So if you're able, please stand with me, and I'm going to read Romans 11. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 10, kind of catch us up in the context, because we looked at verses 1 through 6 last week. It's a privilege to open up the Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, your word is strong. And Lord, these are verses that are tough. 
We thank you for them. We thank you, Lord, that you're here with us and that we pray that you would illumine our hearts, that we, you, you, as we hear the word, you would give us understanding and that you would, you would give us grace to receive your word and to obey it in your power and to apply it in our lives, in our homes, and in the church and take it to the ends of the earth. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 7 starts off and asks this question, what then? What's the conclusion? What are you going to conclude from this passage that has told us that the remnant of believing Jews reminds us that God is faithful? Because you read that, you hear that, and you've got initial joy, and then you read the next verses, and there's a pang of guilt, there's a pang of regret, there's anguish of soul over those who are rejecting Christ. And you have that pain of not being able to save everybody not being able to rescue the perishing. What we read here is that the majority of Israel is hardened. It, it, it stands to reason, right? If there's a remnant, if there's a scrap, that means the majority are rejecting Christ. And we have to deal with that hard reality, that hard truth. Israel didn't obtain what it was looking for, and God's electing work brought Gentiles and the remnant into the people of God. That's what verse 7 is telling us. But the rest of the Jews hardened. The hardening of the rest is proved by Scripture in verse 8. And they, they, it's telling us that God gave them a spirit of stupor and blindness and deafness to the present day. And then we see the situation of Jews today fulfills the prayer of David. And we see this in verse 10. Romans 11 has three parts. We're looking at the first part today and last week. Section 1, it's about the present remnant, verses 1 through 10. So we'll look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 today. And then we'll move on into section 2, which is the bulk of the chapter, verses 11 through 32. And it's about a future restoration. The elect will be saved. The elect will be redeemed. And then at the very end, we get to this very sweet spot, a, a third section that's a doxology. It's a note of praise to God, and it really sums up all of chapters 1 through 11 before we dive into the uh, highly applicable and practical ending chapters. Last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 11, and, and we saw that the present remnant of believing Jews reminds us that God keeps his word. He is faithful. His word is true. And what a reminder. We saw Paul as our first example, the unlikely one. Anytime you see someone who doesn't know Christ and you think, there's no way they could ever get saved, think about Paul. It tells us that we've got to deal with humble evangelism, really, and not write anyone off. And then we had another example of Elijah, and here's the example of not being the only one. He thinks he's the only one, and God's like, you just don't realize there are so many more. And so we've got to take encouragement from that and say, you know, there's a lot more people getting saved than we are expecting. And then we got the example of grace, and it reminds us, you know, you don't do this on your own. You don't do this in your own strength. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And our expectation ought to be one of multiplied grace. That grace would spread to more and more people as God opens more and more hearts to the gospel. Even while some are rejecting Christ, he is going to open up a lot of hearts to the gospel. So thinking about last week, it reminded us to evangelize. It reminded us to be encouraged. It reminded us to expect God to do something. 
He works in his own time. And by the way, you know, as you go verse by verse through the Bible, it's not like, hey, so we got that last week, we're done with that, let's go on to something new. All this blends. It all blends in. Okay, you bring in the evangelism and the encouragement and the expectation into this passage. This passage is really about empathy. It really is. I want you to do something for a moment. If you're a believer, I want you to think back. And if you can think back to when you were not a believer, okay, so the youngest amongst us might go, I don't remember when I wasn't a believer. You maybe got saved at a young age. Praise God for that, that you don't have all these bad memories that many of us have. But I want you, if you can think back what you were like before you were a believer and what kind of mindset you had against the gospel and against Jesus. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because now, as a believer, you're in, you're in, you've come to your senses, you're in your right mind, and you're like, wow, I can't believe I was like that, right? It's very easy when you think about unbelievers sometimes to go, I can't believe they're like that. What, what you know, what ruined sinners, what, what, what people, what are they thinking? As if somehow we became a believer because we were just, you know, such a, a great candidate for the, for the kingdom. And I got saved by mercy and grace alone. I think back to what I was like before I was a believer. You don't want to go back. I just want you to think about that as we go through this passage. Because it's very easy as to look at this and go, man, what's their problem? Well, what was yours? You might be today, you might go, well, I'm in that camp. And I'm hoping that God opens your eyes up to the gospel. Salvation by grace, not works. If works factored into it, grace wouldn't be grace. God chooses apart from any work on the part of people. Martin Luther saw this clearly as he wrote The Bondage of the Will. He said, the will is bound up in sin, unable to work its way to God. God chooses by grace. And so today, when we're looking at this last section of, of the first part of chapter 11, I just want you to, to, to realize something. So you got the joy of going, wow, God keeps his promises. But you got the anguish of soul today. Where you're saying, wow, there's a scrap, there's a remnant getting saved. That means there are a lot of people who are rejecting the gospel with hard hearts and they're unsaved. And, and if somehow we can, we can read about that with a hard heart towards them, our wiring is all, is all messed up. We, we weep over that. When, when Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to them, prayer to God for them is for their salvation, my guess is there'd be tears on the pages he wrote this. So a remnant is saved, and the rest are hardened. They're hardened in response to the rejection of Christ. And God is giving them what they want, and, and, and he hardens their hearts. And there's, there's many, most at this point, are hardened. So verse 7, what, what then? Israel failed to get what it was looking for. Here's what Israel did with God. Hey God, you're going to save us based on our good behavior. We're going to do this, that, and the other, and you are going to save us. God's like, no, that's not my program. No. So they're zealously seeking to be accepted by God on their terms. If you're doing that today, 
Just stop. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. It's going to get you hell. Sorry, kids. You're not supposed to say that word, but it's in the Bible. You and your parents figured that one out. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 tells us, you know, believers had good news preached to them. And, and, and the unbelievers had good news preached to them, but the word they heard didn't profit them because it was not united by faith in those who believed. You're sitting here today as a believer, you're like, I'm saved because God, God gave me the faith to believe the gospel message. Praise God all day long. Mercy and grace. But if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, wait, wait, no, I've heard the good news. I don't want that. Well, because it wasn't united by faith in, the, in, 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 in your hearing and, and it didn't profit you. Right? Verse 7 tells us the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Zeal is not going to get you God's righteousness. By the way, and again, if you're a believer, you weren't seeking God. You can say it however you want, humanly speaking, but you weren't seeking God. God sought you. He, he sought after you, and you were saved by pure mercy. Why do you think it says the elect obtained it? Some of you were like, wait, I thought we were done with election in chapter 9. You need to love the Bible and what it teaches. It's all through the Bible. The elect obtained it. Those whom God graciously chose, they got his righteousness. God said this all through the Old Testament, by the way. Ezekiel 34, he says, I am going to seek for the lost. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But now we're talking about those who are hardened. It means to have really thick skin, to, to have calluses. But I know you're gonna, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, like if you play guitar and you get some calluses on your skin, or you're working in the yard and you don't use your gloves and, and you get calluses. Oh, no, no, no. Way more than that. It's like a stalactite. Okay? It's like a brick wall. It's like granite. We're talking about, really, at its base, it's like, you're, 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 it's like brittle bones, hard bones that then, when they break, then they get put back together, and then that calcification that happens, that. Okay, a hard heart. So the elect obtained what? The righteousness that they weren't looking for. Obtained means to hit the mark. It means to literally like shoot an arrow and hit the bullseye. It literally, it, but it means you, like you weren't looking, but you shot and you got it. You obtained what you weren't looking for because God was looking for you. I hope you know this. If you're a believer, I hope you know God was looking for you. But, so there's a term of contrast here. But the rest were hardened. So covered with thick skin, uh, hardened with, like, like with a callus. Uh, it's a metaphor. It means that it's a dull heart, like there's no sensitivity. It's not getting through. The message isn't getting through. Hardened, blinded even. Some translations say blinded. The idea is it, it's, it's, you're caused to be completely unwilling to learn and to, to have your mind completely closed to the gospel message. You're like, I'm not listening to that. You can keep talking, but I'm not listening. It's like what some of you do to some of your family members or your boss. But this hardening is a righteous act of God. It is fair. It's a judicial act of God in response to their hardened hearts. Now, in Isaiah 6, he has this amazing 
you know, a moment with God where he is, is in the presence of a holy God, and, and what's the only response in the presence of a holy God? Just face down on, on the ground. He's like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You're holy. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God gives assurance of forgiveness for him. And then he says, then he says, send me, God. God's like, who are we going to send? And he says, send me. Here's what God gave him to take to the people. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then he asked the question, how long will this go on? And he says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. So Isaiah is sent with a message as God's instrument to people who weren't going to listen. And God was going to hide the truth from unreceptive people. Jesus' parables did the same thing. Matthew 13, he said, in, the case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. You will keep on hearing. You will not understand. You will keep on seeing. You will not perceive. In John 12, 40, he's blinded their eyes, the heart in their heart, lest they see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. This is what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, where it talks about the unbelieving whose minds are hardened. And it says, until this very day, they read the, the old covenant and a veil lies over their hearts and it remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in, in the case of the unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. They can't see. If you're a believer, oh, you saw the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ was the image of God, and you rejoice. So what the rest get, the remnant doesn't have, are hardened hearts. I hope you don't have a hard heart today. I pray to God you don't have a hard heart today. By the way, God hardening their hearts doesn't remove their responsibility from the Jews. Uh, that is never a conclusion the Bible gets to. The Jews uh, were responsible for their actions and, and, and God hardening their hearts and them being responsible for their actions is completely compatible and we're not wiser than God. Verse eight. What you have next is a, a mixed quote uh, from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and it mixes it together and it begins this way. Look at verse eight. As it is written. Now, that literally means God words, God's word says or God said. That's a very, very important phrase. When you're opening your Bible up and you're reading your Bible and you're like, wait a minute, I'm reading the word of God and it says it is written. So you're in the New Testament and the Old Testament is going to be quoted. This is a common way to introduce an Old Testament quote in the Bible. And it's, it is written. That means it stands forever and, and it's, it's the final word, it's the final authority. Nothing is going to change on this. This is the way it is, because God said it. I hope that you have confidence in the word of God. I hope that you're not thinking that the, the Bible isn't authoritative or that the Bible isn't sufficient. 
I hope that you believe what the Bible says about itself. It is written. It, it was written in the past. It still stands. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. It stresses the continuity of the word of God. It stresses the permanence of the word of God. It implies the divine authority of the word of God. It is written. What was written? Look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Spirit of stupor. We don't use this term, you know, stupor. What does that mean? The best I can give you, it's like getting a concussion. Okay, it's like getting a concussion. I remember once I was playing slow pitch uh, softball with a team and I was running to second base and I've never been a good slider and I didn't slide and the second baseman threw the ball to first and it hit me right in the temple. I went down like a tree and when I came to, everyone's looking down at me and I'm looking up and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, oh, what? I had to get like tests and what have you. I, got, I was hurting for a long time. It gives me a flashback just thinking about it right now. Okay, I'm serious. Sometimes a person gets hit in the head and they, they seem to be fully conscious, like, hey, I can go back in, coach. No, you can't. You're like dizzy. <laughs> okay? How many fingers do I have up? I don't know, 20? You know? You're mentally confused. You're unaware of your surroundings. This is a spirit of stupor. God is saying that he has brought about a spirit of stupor in those who have rejected Christ. He stupefies the people so their eyes cannot see what is there. He pours it out upon the Jews so they will not comprehend the gospel. Now, we're going to see later on in this chapter why that happened. If you're a Gentile, just say, praise Jesus right now. <laughs> praise God that this happened. The present remnant, not just reminding us of hope, it reminds us of how many people are in a spirit of stupor. And by the way, that's from a verb, stupor is from a verb that means to stun you, literally like, to, to punch you really hard and stun you, okay? Uh, sin is a stun gun. Your hardness of heart is a stun gun. You, you just can't get it. And you wonder, like, you see people and you're like, how come there's no pulse when I share the gospel with them? Because their hearts are hard. How many times do I say, only God opens hearts to the gospel? It's not because you were really, really great with your words and you somehow talk them into it. That should give you some confidence. Just give the gospel message. Let God do what he will in the hearts of those who hear. They had a stubborn refusal to see or hear the true revelation and will of God. They're, they're not going with it. They saw the miraculous, and it, that, now that proves more than anything that seeing uh, miracles happen don't necessarily result in genuine belief. They're in a period of stupor, numbness. That, that literally means numbness from a bite, a poisonous sting. Their spiritual senses were dulled. They were made senseless, morally speaking. Psalm 60, verse 3 says, you, you have made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Isaiah 29, 10, the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. Look at that, poured over you. You've got a mixed metaphor here. Sleep like into a liquid. Poured over you a, a, a deep sleep. That's, it's symbolizing their spiritual blindness, their dullness. It literally means a spirit of stinging. And it's not arbitrary. Don't walk away from this and say, oh, God is arbitrary. God's not fair. This is always a judgment. Someone with a spirit of stupor is always being judged for their sin. 
They're dulled by their disobedience. Ezekiel talked about it. Son of man, you, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see and do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. They are a rebellious house. In Mark chapter four, Jesus is explaining the parable of the seeds and the soils. And he says to them, to you, the disciples, uh, it's been given to, to, to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those outside get everything in parables. Why? Because while seeing, now he's quoting the Old Testament, they may not see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may not hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. He's quoting, at one point, Paul's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Moses. What was Moses' point? The people went around for 40 years in the wilderness, and they're on the brink of going into the promised land, and they can't even admit at that point that God saved them from Pharaoh and that God is the one that kept them alive on the very eve of possessing the land. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the Jews that of his time were still laboring under, uh, under the same spiritual blindness that caused them to crucify Christ. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, what does he say before they kill him? You are stiff-necked people. You're hard, you're obstinate, you're proud. You're always resisting, which literally means to assault. It literally means to force with violence. Resist by force the Holy Spirit doing just as your fathers did. Move on to verses 9 and 10. Paul now quotes from another Old Testament place, Psalms, Psalm 69 to be exact. You, you might want to go there. I'm going to quote Psalm 69 a lot in a few moments. Psalm 69, and he's quoting verses 22 and 23. And here's what he says, and David says, so you know he's quoting David here from the Psalms, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So a snare, a net that is used in hunting as a trap. And a trap, something an animal gets caught in. And a stumbling block, something to stumble over, the part that you put the bait on. They're all related, and it's basically like, this is bad, okay? This is really bad for them. And it's going to be a retribution. It means they're going to get paid back. They're going to get their wages of what they deserve. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and they bend their backs forever. Here you have the sobering reality of spiritual blindness. Do you notice it says forever? Literally continually? Constantly? But do you notice in verse 10, verse 9, it's the table. The table becomes the snare. Well, the table in the Old Testament was the place of safety. It was the place of plenty. It was the place of, of rejoicing over God's goodness. And he's saying their table will be a trap and a snare and a cause of stumbling and repayment. This place that was supposed to be a place of safety for them is going to be a trap. The table of the ungodly is a trap. People trust things that... that Damn them. The very thing they thought was their security was their downfall. Their backs would be bent forever. That's a tough line. It's the burden and the heaviness of their sin. It pictures captives whose backs were bent under burdens. Well, here's the question you've got to ask. Why did Paul quote Psalm 69 in such strong words? Because the Holy Spirit told him to. 
There's your answer. But wait a minute. Why, why did he have this on his mind? Why does the Holy Spirit want us hearing these words right now? These are, these are tough words to take. But they're very significant. Now, Psalm 69 is quoted a lot in the New Testament. A lot. And it, it most often regards the life and ministry and death of Christ. It has elements of lament and praise. It's a very pointed, vivid pictures are getting painted. Uh, one writer said, the suffering is poignant, uh, the praise is strong, the imprecations are severe, and the anticipations of Christ are detailed. Psalm 69 contains some of the clearest pictures of Christ and his work in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted it. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 69 verse 9. He, he's suffering on the cross. It's prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 3. After this, Jesus, by the way, knowing that all was finished in John 19, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Psalm 69, 20 and 21, they gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine, vinegar to drink. Paul even quotes Psalm 69 later in Romans. He does it again. He quotes Psalm 69, 9. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, Psalm 69. And then he says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Psalm 69 is important. If you look at Psalm 69, it's a series of prayers. It starts with a prayer of, of, of cry for rescue, save me, O God. Pictures a drowning man. It moves on to prayer for the people of God. The suffering wouldn't bring shame to the people of God and confusion to God's people. The psalmist is being scorned and abused and alienated from those closest to him. He is being ridiculed. He's zealous for God, but he's being ridiculed by many. Then the psalm moves into a series of intense, repeated supplications for rescue, and it's all based on the character of God. God, your steadfast love will rescue me. Your abundant mercy, your saving faithfulness, your steadfast love is good. But the verses that are quoted here in Romans 11 go to a place that makes us very uncomfortable. Because this psalm also includes prayer that God would curse his enemies. It's called an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory psalm. It's very misunderstood. A lot of people say, oh, that doesn't belong anywhere in the New Testament. Well, it is, people. Let's get used to it. It's in Romans 11, right here. We just read it. What is an imprecation? Can we get, away, can we get around it somehow? Is it something that maybe isn't as strong as it really sounds? No. Okay, imprecation means verbal curse. It is literally a, a, a spoken curse upon the enemies of God. You can't get around this, and it's right here in the, old, in the New Testament. You, so you can't say, oh, but the New Testament is all, only love and grace. There's no judgment. By the way, Acts 1.20 quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, to explain the loss of Judas. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. There's an imprecatory prayer. By the way, prayer of impre- imprecation, we don't use this term very often, but again, a verbal curse. It, it, it's the most terrifying words in the Psalms, okay? These two verses... Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they will not see and bend their backs forever. Those are the most terrifying words in the Psalms. He is praying that the Lord's enemies will be 
poor and oppressed and lose their home and lose their heritage. And in case you have somehow missed that point, he prays that they would be cursed. Paul utters an imprecation in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul utters an imprecation in Galatians chapter one. If anyone preaches a gospel that is different than the true gospel, let him be accursed. If you downplay the necessity and, uh, and the righteousness of, of God's judgment, you are actually downplaying the work of the cross, that Christ's work on the cross. So you, we dare not do that. And, and we're not wiser than God. Imprecations have their place. There's a place for this. And it's right here in Romans 11. They apply to those who unrepentantly persevere in evil against God, and especially those who've known the covenant of God and, and knowingly reject it. Like, I've heard the gospel over again, I don't want it. That person's soul is in the most dangerous spot. Well, the question comes is, should we be praying like this today? Should, should we be praying Romans 11, 9 to 10, or just reading it? Imprecations against the enemies of God are not uh, the prayers that we ought to be praying. Uh, we need to do what Paul did, pray for their salvation. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for th their salvation. Now, one person said this, well, it's tempting to pray imprecatory prayers. It's tempted to think imprecatory thoughts. It's even tempting to, to send imprecatory greeting cards. But Jesus didn't teach us to pray like that. But I'm gonna give you a caveat. There's gonna be a but to that. Okay, Jesus didn't teach us to pray like that, but when you pray like Jesus taught us to pray, it includes imprecatory prayer. Let's just go with the Lord's Prayer for a moment. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Judgment's coming. Christ is going to return. Uh, there is glory in the cross. There is glory in salvation. And, and in the outworking of God's imprecatory judgment, his glory shines forth. God has not rejected his people. We should not reject them either. Some are rejected. We need to leave that in God's hands. Some are going to be judged. Some will not see heaven. But we should look eagerly forward to Christ's return. And if you are looking eagerly forward to Christ's return, you know that when he returns, judgment is going to be swift on the ungodly. And the patient forbearance that held back the wrath of God will be coming full force with fury unknown beforehand. Talk about a stun gun. We need to love and pray for our enemies. We are not to pray spitefully. We are to preach the gospel, we are to pray for people, we are to pray for Christ's return, and we are also to long for his return and his judgment. We need to long for the elect to be, to be gathered and the wicked to be converted. We long for the glory of the return of Christ, and imprecatory psalms long for that. It, it, these verses are longing for the return of Christ. I hope you are too. Now, we're going to move on 
next week into the next section in chapter 11, but I, I, I want to, to bring up really two big warnings for Christians, two, two big lessons for Christians that this passage today really teaches us, and we've got to take it to heart. It's a double warning for Christians today. So the present remnant reminds us of the hard-hearted and the rejecting and the unsaved. So the first thing I would say is this. this, is, this is, we we got to be taught by this, this passage, this lesson. Don't lose heart or give up gospel ministry. Don't say, well, all these people are rejecting Christ. Let's just, let's just give up on that. See, our unfinished task is, is God-confident, God-dependent evangelism and discipleship where we go boldly and humbly and lovingly to everyone with the gospel message. And how easy is it for Christians to look around at everyone and not like everyone? Just start with your own neighbors you don't like. The ones you're judging. Our, our confidence should be rooted in, in dependent prayer and in dependent preaching and, and working with people. We devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word with people. If we're prayerless, we're godless. Prayerfulness is godliness. We declare your dependence on God when when you acknowledge, I can do nothing apart from you, Lord. Don't write anyone off. Don't have a list of exclusions of people that you would never preach the gospel to. Tell everyone. That's, that's what Jesus commanded us to do. The last week I gave you seven things about bold evangelism. I'm going to repeat those this week and give you three more. We're going to go quick, but I want to give you some more practical help about this. So don't give up. First, go beyond praying to proclaiming, because remember I said last week, 56% of believers pray weekly for opportunities to preach the gospel, and no one then preaches the gospel. You got to do that. You gotta do that. There was a man who stood up at one of Dwight L. Moody's meetings once and told of an experience that he had. He said, I had a mount of transfiguration moment for five, that lasted five years with God. And Moody says, how many people did you lead to Christ during those years? The guy's like, none. And Moody says, we don't want that kind of uh, mountaintop moment. Because if a man gets so high that he cannot reach down and reach poor sinners, then something is wrong. Number two, get others praying for you. Number three, weave your testimony in. Number four, have scripture ready. It's powerful. Number five, be courageous. Don't be afraid. Number six, follow up. Pray, preach with people. Repeat. Gospel preaching is urgent business. Number seven, remember sovereignty. Only God knows. OGK, only God knows those he's gonna save. It might not be the end of the story for those who are rejecting Christ. If you're rejecting Christ and you've been at grace a long time, it might, it's not the end of the story for you, hopefully. You're still breathing. Even if you got somebody on life support, they can still hear you. Let me give you three more. Number eight, love the lost. Please, please do not read these verses with glee in your heart or with any kind of happiness that they're getting what they deserved. If you're a believer, the curse went on Christ at the cross. The, cur- the, the curse that those rejecting Christ will get, you deserved. You gotta love the lost. You gotta empathize with them. You gotta, you gotta feel for those who are going on their way to hell. Don't hate them. The lost are on our 
doorstep. The lost are in our offices. The lost is on our block. The lost are in our classrooms. The lost are on the ball fields. The lost are all around. We got our nose in our phone. We don't even see them. We, we don't even have eye contact because our nose is in our phone. The commission of Christ has not changed at all. Not at, not at all. It's always been great, but our focus has shifted. We have to repent of our focus shifting. The command to make disciples, our obedience is very questionable. The call is to Christ-exalting evangelism and discipleship, nothing else. You, you love Christ by leading people to Christ and helping them grow. So they can lead people to Christ and help them grow. And so on and so on and so on. And, and if not, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world are we doing? It's all about worship. Jesus said, if you, if you love me, you will do what I say. Uh, love for Jesus drives us. We, we love him because he first loved us. We love others because he loves us. It's evident that we love him when we love others. Uh, love is not syrupy. Love is based on solid food. It's action based on solid food. It's the resolve to do the will of God. Lord, I delight to do your will. Lord, my heart is full of you. Lord, I must speak of your wonders. I must tell everyone. God, thank God for, for, for life. God, thank you that you gave me breath today that I could be alive. Please, Lord, keep me from selfish pursuits. May I work together with my brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and do the ministry God has given us to do and not keep messing around with trivial, tawdry things. We've got to make disciples of the world. Acts 1.8 says that you'll be my, you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's every believer. Preach the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, don't say, I'll see you there in heaven if you don't know they're going to be in heaven. I heard a gospel presentation yesterday that really wasn't a gospel presentation. The guy was a very gifted speaker at a graduation ceremony. And he said, kept saying, Jesus loves you. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. He did John 3.16. But he never told people they need to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And at the end, he said, I'll see you all there. Where? God is not a universalist. He is almighty. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins on the cross, paid the penalty you deserved, substituted himself for you, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, and is coming back. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The forgiveness of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Number nine, lean on Jesus. Lean on Jesus. Look what God can do with scraps. Pray hard like Paul for their salvation. There was an English preacher named Philip Henry who had two children that were near death and he prayed and wrestled with God in prayer and he wrote this in his diary. He said, if the Lord would be pleased to grant me my request at this time concerning my children, I will not say as beggars at our door used to say, I'll never ask anything of him again. On the contrary, he will hear more often from me than ever. I'm praying for you. Your, your, your leaders are praying for you. We've got to pray for one another as we, as we do what God calls us to do. Just know this. You feel weak? Me too. You feel powerless to reach anybody who's rejecting Christ? Me too. Because we are. And it's an advantage to know that. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We cling to the cross. We cling to Christ. Christ holds us fast. And the last thing, number 10, leave it in God's hands. We're still in that first point I gave you, and I'm giving you three extras, I know. Three extras on that list of 10 from last week. Leave it in God's hands. Don't stress out and wring your hands and go, oh, I just don't know. God knows. He knows what he's gonna do. Just move on to the next person, then go back to the person you shared with that rejected Christ. Just go back. Keep telling and keep appealing to them. And just know the, hardens will not, the hardened hearts will not be happy about your gospel ministry. You have to deal with that and don't retaliate against them and think they're your enemy. Decide now to be bold and courageous and depend on Christ. Your heart may be crushed, and it should be, with the fact that many people are rejecting Christ. I read story after story of people that were at 9-11 that were just, that just racked with guilt because they couldn't save more people. And they're like, why did I survive? I have a Vietnam friend, Vietnam vet friend who, who asked me the other day, keep praying for me for strength because my soul is in darkness remembering my best friend who died in 1969 and I couldn't save him. Just remember when you're bringing the gospel, God is all powerful. The Bible tells us that our times are in his hands, that all the days ordained for us before there even was one, was all counted by God. God knows. Man knows not his time. One last thing. As I said, I'd give you two main lessons, and I only gave you one. Here's the second main lesson, and then we'll just stop with that. Don't proudly presume on the grace of God. If you're a believer today, don't go out here proud that you're a believer and, and you know, wagging your finger at those who aren't. And if you are not a believer, you cannot repent too soon because soon it will be too late for you to repent. Let's pray together, okay? Lord, thank you that this passage warns us. It actually warns us against a hard heart. And I pray, Lord, that with the joy we have in Christ, we, you, would, you would allow this passage to light a fire in us and a resolve to worship you every moment of every day and to engage in evangelism and discipleship, Lord. And, and know that you want us kind and merciful with, 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 with unbelievers and believers, that we would be marked by empathy and mercy and that we, we wouldn't see people as messed up sinners, but that we would see them as made in the image of God and that we would long that their soul would be captured by your grace, that they would live for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that any curse the damned get, we deserved. And thank you, Lord, that it was at the cross that you took the curse for us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.